So looking at all of those things and going in with the idea of how do you market to those people? How do you attract those people? What do they look for? What's the value that they need to see in order for this to be an attractive asset to them? What are other businesses that are local that we can partner with to be able to kind of share some of our customer base and kind of keep both businesses afloat? Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate. From co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host, broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute and rate us. And don't forget to like and follow along with me on social media as well. My resource freebie this month is the COVID-19 Asset Protection Guide. This includes several of the best practice steps that I myself am implementing at my apartment communities, as well as other syndicators I've spoken with. You can find this guide and practical steps to implement immediately at www.elliepearlman.com resources. All right, so let's get started. My guest today is Vina Jetty. Vina is a founding partner of Enzo Brands, who oversees management of over a billion dollars in real estate assets. She's not only a real estate investor, as you can probably tell from her bio, but a philanthropist who founded a national nonprofit organization helping companies and nonprofits understand how they can be better prepared for disaster response. So Vina has an undergraduate degree in finance from the University of Illinois, Chicago. Hey, Vina, great to have you on the show today. Hi, Ellie. I'm so excited to be here. It's been a long time coming. I know, I know, right? So I, I know your story pretty well, but I'm going to be, you know, extremely happy if you can share with the listeners, you know, a little bit about your background and also how you got started in real estate. Absolutely. So like you said, we have worked together for a very long time now. So going back to the beginning, pre-Ellie. So my family is actually a real estate family. So they started investing 30 plus years ago here in the US. Actually, Chicago was their big market. And then we've recently divested from all of Chicago. And now we're mainly in Texas and Florida on my family's side, as well as obviously on the Enzo side. I graduated you know, from undergrad and started working right in actually the last recession that we had back in 2007. And so I went and worked for some of the big commercial real estate firms. My most recent position before leaving corporate America was at Tishman Spire in DC. And I had a billion dollar asset under my management there. And I was part of that asset management team. Now, since being there, I have left and obviously started my own companies. I initially started by investing in single family homes for my personal portfolio. 
since then, I have tried to get rid of most of them. (laughs) I still have a few left, but those are properties that for one reason or another made sense to keep within my portfolio. But other than that, I'm strictly multifamily now. So eventually we kind of got to a point where I couldn't scale anymore on the single family side. There was like, I think in my busiest weeks, I was buying like four or five houses a week in single family. And so it just got to be too much to manage too much work. It wasn't a very easily scalable business. There was a lot more risk involved. So then I had met my partner, Seth and Pilati, who I think you've had on the show before. And so he and I started this together and got into this venture. And over the years, I think we've perfected our process more and more. Obviously, there's always improvements to be made. But I think every year, every project, every day, we're just learning best practices. And we really try to implement them and kind of stay ahead of where, you know, the curve is, if at all possible. And then we have added a partner who you also know, Pooja. So Pooja Talati is the one that does all of our like marketing, branding, I always say like anything that looks pretty that comes from Enzo, it's because Pooja's hands definitely touched it. So Seppin does all of our underwriting. He is kind of like our financial guru. He does our capital stack on the debt side. And so we all just are a really good fit with each other, if you will. So that's kind of where we are today and from where I came from. Awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit about the assets that you're buying. We always start in the show with talking about asset first. What type of assets does Enzo buy today? Or how did you start and and what is the kind of the type of assets that you're kind of focused on? Yeah. So as of today, I would say our portfolio has shifted even from where we were like two years ago or three years ago or where, you know, my husband and I were 10 years ago. So I think that, and I say 10 years ago, we weren't even married 10 years ago. We we got married eight years ago, so eight years ago. And so I would say where we are today is we're looking at those solid B assets. We look for very stable income. We look for very stable demographics. We look for newer vintage. You know, we try to stay in the 80s and newer. We have been looking a lot at like 90s and early 2000s vintage assets. We look at those areas that have a lot of job growth, that have tech growth, that have stability within the tenant base, the tenant population, so that when surprise, you know, downturns happen in the market, we can still sustain the asset, at least at a minimum to meet debt service and protect the principal that's in the property. That's like our bare minimum that we look for. And that's like kind of the end of the world scenario that we plan for. And planning for the end of the world scenario, we all know, you know, the reality, unfortunately, today of, you know, we're living in a pandemic, you know, COVID-19 has changed so many things. I don't even know one person that hasn't been impacted by it one way or another. So I'm kind of curious to learn from you, what are the best ways that you know that you've implemented in your company to minimize the impact of a recession before you buy real estate. So there've been a lot of discussions about what you can do now that you're facing, you know, this new reality, what you can do to actually minimize your exposure, you know, the impact and improve collections. But what can you do before you buy real estate, before you're actually in a recession? Yeah. So I think that that's an interesting question. I think a lot of people are kind of asking this question right now as they're going into buying new assets, because, you know, one thing I want to be clear about is just because there's a potential recession, we don't know how this is going to impact the market, right? Like, is this going to be a temporary dip? And are we going to come back up? Maybe. Is this going to be something that's plateaued? Are we going to 
you know, drop down. We just don't know. It's too soon to tell. So with that being said, I think everybody's kind of asking those same questions. We are still in acquisition mode. So for Enzo, we acquire at all points on the real estate cycle. We acquire at the top and at the bottom of the market. If we can't acquire because of a recessionary market or because of a bull market, then we aren't going to be doing business half of the time that the markets are operating, right? So we're always acquiring. It's the strategy that shifts. So already what we've started implementing, for example, would be we're underwriting to a much higher vacancy. So now instead of maybe using two, three, four, five percent, which was absolutely standard prior to COVID, we're now stress testing to a much higher level. So we're looking at, okay, what does it look like at 10%? What is it looking at 12%? We're also looking at, you know, what the local statutes and laws are and what the ability for us to do kind of more roommate plans are. We're looking at assets with better roommate plans. So for example, an asset that we bought in December has a really great layout for that because it has two separate entrances. And on either side, there's bedrooms and bathrooms, ensuite bathrooms connected to those bedrooms. So it really is a true roommate style setup. I think those are going to be very successful as we go into more of a downturn market. We've started optimizing our leasing terms. So in Florida, which is kind of our major market we operate in, you can't have short-term leases per the lender restrictions, blah, 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 blah. But what a short-term lease is considered is a six-month or shorter lease. So now we have the ability to offer more seven-month leases. We also are looking at being able to implement things like Airbnb or month-to-month rentals. We are shifting to more corporate rentals on some of our assets. So looking at all of those things and going in with the idea of how do you market to those people? How do you attract those people? What do they look for? What's the value that they need to see in order for this to be an attractive asset for them? What are other businesses that are local that we can partner with to be able to kind of share some of our customer base and kind of keep both businesses afloat? So those are all things we look at as we go into the asset. We also obviously know kind of what we can do in terms of working out things in the bank. So like forbearance and stuff like that, that is like a very, very last option. Like we are not looking at any of that on any of our current assets today. I agree. Yeah. But I do think you want to be really careful about reading your language in your loan. So you know what the potentials are. A lot of loans that I've seen in the last year, even that other investors have signed have an automatic call trigger. So basically the bank can just trigger the loan and call it in at any given time. And that's going to be a really big problem if banks start exercising that today or next month or next quarter. So I think being prepared by knowing what you're getting into is just as important as underwriting for worse scenarios. I also, an interesting positive change that I would see to going into an asset here is a decrease in payroll burden. Because I think that now with everybody moving quickly to adapt to a more virtual setting, I think that there's a lot of potential that you could share services across more than one asset. You could reduce the number of staff that you actually need on each asset on the leasing side. So maybe you run on a tighter expense budget versus running on a more robust expense budget. I think that your tech line item or your software and subscription line item should definitely increase because you're going to want to utilize you know, things like this. The other thing that we do going into our assets, and, you know, I've shared this with you before on all of the Enzo assets, we've rolled out our disaster recovery protocols. 
So we were actually putting this into place like way before COVID was even a thing. And basically we have a proprietary software that we use to host our platform and it will allow any one of these various pre-planned scenarios to be triggered in the case of an emergency. So for example, there's like an active shooter, there's an earthquake, there is a building fire, whatever it is, there's usually 40 plus different scenarios that are planned from start to finish. And basically it'll tell you like, okay, you know, Joe Smith, who's the community manager will trigger these five actions and these are his responsibility. And Vina Jetty, it's your responsibility to make sure you reach out to all the investors and communicate these things on these timelines. So it's already pre-planned so that when you're utilizing it, you're not trying to figure out what to do, which it's kind of the surprise that I feel like a lot of people are in now. So we had ended up rolling that out here at like right before all this happened. And then we were like, oh, okay, wait a second. We don't have a specific COVID protocol. So we actually relaunched again and we updated all of our assets to have a specific COVID protocol. And I can share this with you if you put a link in the comments or you want to share it to your listeners. But I have a fillable PDF that we've released as well that has a very quick and dirty temporary COVID protocol. It's definitely not comprehensive. It's not everything I would recommend you have on an asset. However, like just as a stopgap measure, I think it's really important to put it into place. Your investors will definitely like seeing it. Our investors were really appreciative that we have put so much time into planning this. And your lenders will like it too, because it'll give them peace of mind that you guys are actively handling the situation. So again, quick and dirty. It's definitely not comprehensive, but it takes a lot of time to put out you know, what we do on our platform because that gets updated every month. So it's never out of date. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll add it to the show notes. So anyone who's listening right now who wants to get access to it, we'll definitely share the link and add it to our show notes. Well, I think that was a really, really good overview when it comes to asset protection and what to do in times of crisis, because there's going to be more, you know, maybe not the next pandemic, but it's going to be something that would be happening, you know, could be, you know, a storm, could be earthquake. There's so many things out there that can have an impact on your property. True. So I think it's really, really important to have this protocol in place, or at least if you haven't had anything like that, start thinking about building this protocol. That would be crucial. So thank you so much for that. I want to shift and talk about the process when, you know, you're a syndicator and you're, you know, working with investors if you can talk a little bit about your process on, you know, attracting investors to join you on your deals, what would that be? Yeah, so I think that we've actually been really lucky in what we've done. So the first thing, right, is you need to have a track record. You need to have some kind of resume to say like, look, here's what I've done and here's why it was successful. Here's what didn't work and here's what we've learned or you know, moved on from. So I think that that's like first and foremost. So for us, our investors are now, honestly, they're usually seeking us out. We don't really go out of our way to find investors. Our deals are overfunded. So it's a great problem to have. And it totally kills me to have to turn away money ever, but our deals are overfunded. So what that tells me is our investors are very happy with us. About like 90% of our investors are repeat investors with, and so they are invested across two or more projects. And investors continue to keep putting money into our assets because they 
I hope, I mean, I assume they like what we're doing. They're happy with what we're doing. And so to me, that's like the biggest thank you. And that's the biggest compliment. And then the second thing is they refer their friends, family, colleagues to us, especially once they have that like experience with us, they continue referring their networks to us and it keeps growing. And it's like a snowball effect really. But, you know, we put a lot of time and energy and effort into developing all of our relationships. So just because an investor or a potential investor is, you know, introduced to me, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to get into our investor database. We're pretty selective in that we want to make sure it's a good fit for both of us. We build the relationship and then they're invited to invest with us. So we don't just like blast an email out to everybody that we've ever talked to once. It's, you know, it's much more complicated than that. Like our investors, I, one of us talked to them, you know, when I talked to our investors, like I know when they went on vacation, I know what they do for a living. You know, we talk about things outside of multifamily. We talk about things outside of the investment. It's very much a relationship business. So I think that having that sincerity, I think having that relationship and building that foundation and being patient because, you know, this is a lot of money investors are putting in and whether it's, you know, 25000 or $250,000, it's all money that they've worked hard to earn. And so, you know, one of the biggest compliments I've ever gotten from an investor is we have an investor who puts $25,000 into our investments because he can't afford to do more right now. And he said to me, I know I ask you so many questions. He's like, and you guys always treat me like I write a million dollar check every time. And for me, that is what I want every single investor to like leave any conversation or any communication with us feeling like. Yeah, I think relationship is key. And that's also what separates, you know, great sponsors from average sponsors. Absolutely. Um, And you talked before about, you know, how you communicate with them and being sincere and open. So when it comes to a disaster or even, you know, let's say investment is not going as planned because let's just say there's no pandemic, but there's, you know, you can't really collect the rents, you know, the rent bumps that you've predicted, for instance, what are, you know, some tips that you have on communication with investors when things you know, don't work as planned? Yeah, I think that opening the lines of communication is like the first step in anything that you do, right? So whether that be sending an email, whether that be picking up the phone and calling, whether that be, you know, sending a text, setting up a time, whether it be hosting a webinar, whatever that is, right? For your company, your model, your typical mode of communication. I think that that is the first step that you take in any of those. So For Enzo, we put out a webinar about two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago now. And we, you know, we had a PowerPoint presentation where we went over, here are all the steps we've already taken. Here are the plans that we have in place. Here's a sample of our disaster recovery protocol and keeping that line of communication open. I've had investors reach out to me and, you know, ask me for questions, ask me for reassurance. That's what we're there for, right? Is look, here is what's happening here's what we've done to mitigate any potential risk or fallout from it. And the craziest thing about COVID is like, none of us have ever been through this ever in our whole entire lives. Like not a single person on the face of the planet today has been through this. And so we're all kind of like the blind, leaving the blind here. And we're trying to navigate this like unprecedented time right now. A lot of our investor database are physicians. And so, you know, they're at the front lines right now. They are sacrificing a lot to make sure that 
you know, the rest of us can be safe and healthy and, you know, hopefully alive at the end of this. So I think that just acknowledging the stress that everybody's under, acknowledging that none of us really know. I mean, it's the honest truth is none of us know what's going to happen. But know that we have the best tools available to us. We're constantly, you know, staying on top of this to be able to pivot quickly and to be able to start moving assets in the direction that they need to go. But we will get through this at the end of the day, right? Like this, it's not fun. I don't recommend (laughs) this for anybody to go through, but we're all in it together, right? There's no investment. Like you said, there's not a single person in this country that is not affected by this. So yeah, we're all kind of navigating. Yeah, absolutely. And I think open line of communication is key. And not only, you know, share what you think that, you know, you're going to do or did, but also, you know, when, if something doesn't really go well, communicate that and be open with that, because I think investors would understand what they're not going to understand if things went, you know, went south and you weren't extremely open about it. It will be known. So just, yeah, communicated and, you know, it's a very humbling experience. It's a very, I would say, there's a lot of pressure on a lot of people, you know, including, you know, sponsors, we have a lot of responsibilities. I think that that's a great, you know, tip to kind of I liked your idea of just having a conversation recorded and and show, you know, some slides to make it, you know, a little bit more, I think, easy to understand, easy to to digest. So that, that was a great tip. I want to shift and talk a little bit about strategy and, you know, I understand your strategy with Enzo is to purchase, you know, solid B assets, value add deals in Florida mainly. Has your strategy changed or you think it would change now that, you know, that we're in that pandemic state? Yeah. So I think what's kind of interesting for us is we already started shifting our model, like, right before all of this kind of happened. And so where our model is as of, I mean, I would even say last year is kind of when we started moving our assets a little bit, but I think that we are exactly where we would have ended up if we hadn't shifted back then. So we were already kind of on this path and we were already moving toward this kind of status quo of where we are today. One of the strategies I think, and it's not really a strategy, but one of the obstacles that I think that we are facing today that I don't really have an answer of how to overcome just yet. And I think it'll resolve eventually is how do we complete due diligence, right? Like that is the big question. And I don't know that I've heard a strategy that really makes sense just yet given what we know today about COVID, given what we know about, you know, it's, the spread, how it's spread. And so I think there's still a lot of question marks about that. I think there's some factors that can be mitigated into your PSA that can kind of help alleviate some of the pressure there. But I think it's just very difficult because there's just so many question marks and every day things are changing, like almost minute to minute things are changing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, when, when it comes to passive investors, there's little that they can do right now. They've already written the check. They've already invested in the deal. So they're pretty much dependent on the sponsor. And hopefully they chose to work with, you know, an experienced and capable sponsor because that would make all the difference in the world now. But when it comes to investors right now, some investors are still looking to invest. They still have capital. 
they still, you know, they understand that it might be riskier than it was two months ago. They understand that the returns are probably going to be lower, but they're basically thinking, you know, just keep my money in the bank is going to make me far less money than any worst case scenario that I can see investing in real estate. What would you advise those investors, those passive investors in terms of strategy? Should they shift their strategy or, you know, what do you think the steps that they should take to make sure that they're investing in the right syndication or, or in the right property? Yeah. So I think that, well, okay. First, I think that there's not going to be a one size fits all strategy for investors in general, right? Like what's going to work for you is not going to work for me and it's not going to work for my neighbor. And so it's like very different for each investor. Also with the caveat that I have no licenses to give any kind of financial investing advice. What I would say to investors is I would talk to your financial advisor and your CPAs and I would discuss really kind of keeping the same strategy that you had six months ago. Look, investing is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Nothing that we do, at least, is going to be a quick and dirty deal. Like we look for the solid double. We don't look for the home run. And so what I would say is you're still going to want to invest where you think you're going to do the best, right? And where you can tolerate the level of risk. Now, I actually think that real estate is going to be a less risky investment than other investments available, like all things being equal. And I think multifamily specifically is the least risky of the investment classes available within the real estate pie, if you will. So why do I say that? Because right now we're seeing our investor database. They are begging us to place money right now. We have more capital than we could place before. And now I think we're going to have an even more influx of that because people are pulling out of the market. They don't want to buy into the market right now because they don't know what's going to happen there. They want tangible assets. They want hard assets. Multifamily is an asset class where like, it doesn't matter how bad the economy is doing. You're still going to need a place to live. It's all the reasons that we love multifamily in a great market. They still apply today. So I wouldn't like, we're not changing our investment like strategy per se. All we're doing is we're actually getting ready to acquire even more now than we did a year ago or two years ago. And so now is when we're like in heavy acquisition mode because there's a lot more opportunity for us to buy assets at better pricing. But it's definitely not a time to, I think, change everything that you're already doing. Mm -hmm. And for a passive investor, if the communication from their sponsor is not very good or elaborated, what would you recommend them? What questions should they ask their sponsor, their syndicator, if they, you know, assuming they want to know more about what's happening or if they have some line of communication, what kind of the things that you think are essential to know. And if they're not part of the sponsor's communication, they should reach out and inquire about. You mean if they're already invested in a deal? Yeah. If they're already invested in a deal. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. That's a tough one because I think, I mean, I like to think that most sponsors understand the chaos and the panic from the LP side. So I'd like to think that all sponsors are either being proactive about reaching out or if they, you know, and I will say it's a busy time for all of us. We're fielding hundreds of calls. We're also trying to get like all of our K-1s out the door. It's like, it's a very chaotic time at a baseline. And then you add this and then, you know, we have like 
we're all working from home and we all, we don't have access to our coworkers the same way we did. And somebody always has kids that we're screaming at constantly in the background. So it's like, it's just a very chaotic time. So if a sponsor is not being very communicative, I would first give like a wide berth of benefit of the doubt to them that there's probably just a lot going on and there's no intention of ignoring an investor. But Considering that they have good intentions, which is what I would hope, I would send an email and I would ask to set up a time or a call with them and have a list of questions that you can send ahead of time so that they can either send you an email with all of the answers you need, or if it requires a little bit more in-depth conversation, they can pick up the phone and call you and have that conversation with you. I think most of us are absolutely willing and able and looking forward to having these conversations because we're all in this together, right? Like we invest passively in all of our deals as well as on the active side. So we sit right alongside the investors and we have the same concerns about our own funds. So I think that trying to open up those lines of communications, you know, I think everybody could use a lot of benefit of the doubt, you know, and it goes both ways, even for sponsors. If you have an investor reaching out to you a bunch of times and, you know, it's not normal for them, there's fear. It's fear, it's anxiety of the unknown, it's manifesting in these ways. And I think we all, you know, right now we can use a little bit of tolerance and a little bit of grace to everybody both ways. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, you mentioned an email with questions. What do you think would be kind of the main questions to ask? Yeah, I think if your sponsor hasn't already communicated with you what the plans are to ensure rent collection, because the biggest factor in all of this, like that should be the highest priority right now is making your debt service, paying that mortgage. Everything else can wait. Everything else can stop. Everything else can halt, right? So do we have enough to make debt service? Do we have enough reserves to make debt service? If not, what is the plan here to do this? Are we looking at forbearance? And if those answers don't really satisfy what you need to know, then let's talk about what kind of CapEx budget we have. So is there a long runway for CapEx that we can now reallocate for any kind of shortfall on debt service? Because it's not gonna go to zero. You're not gonna have zero tenants paying zero dollars in rent. There may be like just a few dollars of shortfall. And that's a much easier gap to bridge than if you have, you know, one single family home and now your tenant is no longer paying rent. That's a different scenario. And so I think that asking what plans are in place, what plans could be in place. I, you know, I've had passive investors that have forwarded along to me what other sponsors are doing. And it's always helpful for us to see what everybody else is doing, because maybe we can learn something, maybe we can do something better. And so I always welcome that kind of communication and feedback from our investors. We are trying to be proactive about sending out communication. Even when we don't really have an update, we still try to have at least a touch point. So if you are a sponsor listening to this and you can put out like, even if it's a weekly call or a bi-weekly call, does bi-weekly mean every other week or twice a week? I never know. Every other week, yeah. Every other week, right? Okay, so every other week. If you're putting out like an every other week call, you know, that is helpful for your investors to at least know, like, we're not sitting here doing nothing. We're actually working on this behind the scenes. You just don't, this is the passive part. This is the fun part of investing where you don't don't need to to do do all all this work. (laughs) Right. Because we're going to do it for you. So yeah, I think that those are the questions. That's the big question you want to know is what about the mortgage? How are we paying Mm -hmm. the mortgage? What happens if we don't pay the mortgage? Because that's when your principal kind of becomes at risk. But If your asset has good debt on it, 
you will be able to come to some kind of resolution, whether it be with your lender, whether it be with maybe I've seen a lot of syndicators that are cutting their press payments or halting their press payments right now to conserve cash. I think that's a smart move. I've seen a couple that have done capital calls don't really like to do that. We've never done it. Again, this is like unprecedented. So who knows what the situation is going to be like, but we haven't seen anybody do a capital call like personally, but I've seen other investors doing it. I think that we're seeing a lot of different programs to help our residents and help our tenants because we want them to make it through this too. And we want them to be as minimally impacted by it. So, and I, yeah, I would see what they're doing for residents. I would see so mortgage, what are you doing about residents? How are we treating investors? And how are you going to communicate with us going forward if there are changes to X, Y, or Z? I think those are the big ones. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great list. Thank you, Vina, so much for sharing that with us. I think that was very, very helpful, you know, for passive investors. I want to move forward to the lightning round questions. Are you ready? Okay. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> take like a deep breath. All right. I'm ready. They're going to be easy. I promise. The first one is what's your favorite hobby? No, these are not easy. These are not easy. Okay. I love to eat. I'm a really big foodie. <laughs> so we love to travel and we love to eat. So this is actually really hard during this coronavirus course thing because we're not getting out. We're not traveling. We can't really eat at restaurants. So I would say food, travel, and playing Texas Hold'em. <laughs> <The curveball. laughs> nice. All right, that's a good list. What's the one thing that people don't know about you? Oh, I don't know. I feel like I'm such an open book that people know most things. Okay, let's see. A secret talent I have. Okay, I can speak Pig Latin fluently. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like my sister and I, when we were little, we both learned how to speak in Pig Latin so we could talk in front of our parents in like a secret language and they wouldn't know what we were saying. That's very nice. And you still remember it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like it's one of those things like when you learn how to do it, it's just it just kind of like sticks with you. <laughs> I don't know. No. I also have an affinity for learning languages. So maybe just because like, I mean, I wouldn't even count it as a real language, but Maybe because like I like to learn new languages I can remember. I don't know. I'm weird. Well, awesome. That's a very nice. I didn't even know that about you. See? Okay, good. <laughs> well, now I do. What do you wish you had known when you just started out? Oh, gosh. I wish I would have known to go straight to multifamily and skip like everything single family along the way. Yep. I hear you. I hear you. That, that's something yeah. we, we hear on the show a lot and, and I can totally relate. What made you passionate about disaster response? You mentioned that you had a really good disaster response plan. I don't know, actually. So like when I really got entrenched in disaster response was with Hurricane Harvey and doing rescue work there. And I kind of, I mean, I had no experience in doing disaster work at all. I mean, I still wouldn't even say I'm qualified to be, you know, a disaster recovery expert or anything like that. But I just think I saw that there was like a massive need for help. And I wanted to try to alleviate some of the suffering that other Texans were experiencing at the time. And so that's what really got me to dive into disaster response. And then obviously it ended up translating to business because at that time I realized what the response is really matters for how much you can mitigate the damage to the business. 
And the more you can minimize the interruption of business and the more you can have like a business continuity plan in place, the better it's going to be for everybody, right? For investors, for you as the owner, for your employees, for your residents. So that's why it kind of became a central focus for Enzo and Theory to have these plans in place and put them on assets because they're not cheap to implement. So that's why people don't do it. And they're definitely difficult to keep updated, right? Like most people have a disaster plan, but they're like five years outdated. So if that person doesn't work here anymore, who's going to trigger the plan, you know? So that's why it's so important to have it on a technology platform that you can update and you update it regularly. So it's definitely worth the investment, especially in times like this. Mm -hmm. All right. Last question is where can people find you? Uh, That's you can the easy find me one, basically. See? Yeah, you can basically find me anywhere on social media. Dina Jetty is usually my username and handle on all social media platforms. And you can also email our admin at enzobrands.com and they'll be able to put you in touch with me. Or if you go to our website, you can click to sign up and you'll get a call with either myself or one of my partners. All right. Awesome. Well, Vina, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed it. And I hope that our listeners, you know, enjoyed it too. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.